Hello and welcome to the fourth and final for 2020 installment of Alan Overy's APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team series, Trust Us. For the last time this year, I am your host, Holly Hart, and today we will be putting the emphasis on the agency part of our practice with a look into loans. We've discussed a number of times the various ways that the events of 2020 have impacted the bond market and consequently the drivers for our clients' businesses. Of course, the loan markets have not escaped the impact of market volatility, as many of your clients have sought to restructure, refinance, or otherwise rejig their credit facilities. To cap off the year, we're going to look at these markets and touch on some of the key ways in which you, our clients, are engaged in current market activity. To begin, I am delighted to be introducing you to Daniel Tan, counsel in our APAC banking team based in Hong Kong. Dan has a depth of knowledge and experience in loan markets across the region, and he is going to give us a high-level overview of exactly what is happening and what is not as 2020 draws to a close. He will also provide some insight into how loan agents can be most effective from the perspectives of the banks and the borrowers in the types of transactions that they are currently undertaking. Then in our second deep dive, my fantastic colleague, Katie Signey, who many of you will have worked with on your loan agency deals, will join me once again. Katie is going to explore some of the technical aspects of the roles performed by the facility agent and the security agent in refinancing, facility restructurings and security releases. And in particular, examine timing considerations that are relevant for the smooth completion of these often complex transactions. Finally, in our first recurring segment, KIV, we'll check in again with Tim Beach, the head of our APAC CT&A team, to get a quick update of what he is keeping in view as we close out this very memorable year. As always, we aim to keep this tight, so let me introduce our first guest, Daniel Tan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Holly, how are you doing? Great, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we are delighted Pleasure. to be able to share some of the expertise of our colleagues in the banking team with our clients, but I will be frank, I will be unashamedly picking your brain for our benefit. This has been an unprecedented year. So what have you been up to? And by that, I mean, what's been the market activity? Thanks, Holly. Yeah, it's been a very interesting year, um, I'm sure, for all of us, um, both personally and certainly professionally. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the big theme, of course, of this year, I think no one will be surprised to hear, is, is COVID. Um, but that has affected us and sort of the work that we've had this year in, in different ways. Um, so the years begin in a very standard manner. Those new money deals that didn't quite make the Christmas or New Year cutoff time, um, you know, those were spilling into January and there was looking like a very healthy, healthy pipeline. And then, of course, COVID hit. Uh, and it first obviously manifested itself in, in sort of its impact on the equities market. Uh, and there was perhaps, if people may remember, in March or February, a, a series of two or three Fridays where there was two and a half Black Fridays in a row, um, not just because of COVID, but because of what Saudi Arabia was doing with the oil price and, and, and you know, prices across the region crashed. And so that had an immediate impact on the margin lending that we have been doing throughout the region. So there were margin calls uh, in, in markets from Vietnam to Singapore, to India, to Hong Kong. And that's what kept us very busy in that, in that time period. And that was a very sort of stressful time as well for the banks as you know, in margin loans, uh, time is of the essence. Um, so if you start hitting these pricing triggers, the banks need to think very carefully about enforcement and enforcing quickly. Uh, and you know, there, were, there was one call, for example, where 
we were on on a call where we were discussing a, a margin call trigger that had been hit. Uh, but in that time during that call, the price plummeted even further and hit what we call a hard trigger, uh, which required a mandatory prepayment of the entire loan. I remember the bank saying, oh dear, it's gone, it's gone below the hard trigger and, and we all hung up so that the banks could go and reconsider their positions and dial back in again. So it was certainly very um, stressful and dramatic. Then once that sort of immediate impact on the sort of the, the equities market, and then COVID began to hit the, the, the macro economy. Uh, and so we began to see lots of waivers um, coming in initially. Um, as as lenders, uh, sorry, as borrowers begin to figure out that actually some of their financial covenants, um, obviously based on earnings in the past year, may be soon be hit, and the ability to meet those financial covenants, and so there were lots of waivers, and it's really interesting to see how how in that context COVID so affected the markets in very different ways. So obviously at the start of the year, you know, a massive impact in China and this in this part of the world. Uh, but subsequently, you know, as you move into summer and into Christmas and winter, you know, China has come up quite well out of it, but Europe and, and America are still struggling. And you can see that in some of the waivers that we've we've had to entertain. So in the South, you know, there's a deal we did last year where where we were acting for a Chinese uh, hotel chain who was buying a, a, a German business, hotel business, and they were lending money uh, at a corporate level to finance that acquisition. And the start of the year, Germany, the German business was doing well, but the Chinese not doing so well. And so we managed to get covenant waivers uh, on that basis. But as COVID, the impact of COVID became more global and more varied, um, the German business became affected. Um, and so now we're discussing waivers in that context. So it's, a, it's been a very interesting year uh, as COVID moved into that sort of phase. And now as, as, as we're moving into the end of the year, still lots of discussions about covenant waivers and things like that. But um, as there's a bit more clarity uh, uh, as to how COVID is going to impact the market, people are now beginning to um, to deploy the dry powder that they have accumulated over the past three or four years uh, and started looking at opportunistic investments and acquisitions and therefore there's lots of potential new money deals coming in and we haven't been so busy this Christmas. I say this, I say this every Christmas but we haven't been this busy Christmas this, this than, than more so than others so so and I think that was spill into next year so it's been a it's been a very interesting year for, for everyone I think. Okay so it sounds as though it was a volatile but not wholly disastrous here, which hopefully indicates a level of resilience, I guess, that we can carry forward. Uh, speaking of uh, looking ahead, uh, let's look ahead to 2021 and beyond, uh, being hopeful of a sort of sustained market recovery. Where do you think the markets are heading? Yeah, I think there's sort of three things to look out for next year. One is that I think, I'm not sure about you, but, but about the team in Singapore, but certainly in, in, in Hong Kong, you know, we have been having lots of um, fee quotes. Um, so there's lots of ac a potential new activity in the pipeline. Uh, and that's why we're so busy at the moment as people try to close new deals before Christmas. And I think that would inevitably flow through into next year. Next year is going to be very busy with new money deals, I think. Um, but second point I think is, but the, the impact of COVID will, will start soon appearing in people's financial statements if they haven't already. And so there will be a bit more restructuring, I think. Uh, and in that context, it's quite interesting to see uh, how how that will play out. So, for example, uh, in the Maldivian Airlines restructuring, and this is all public um, information. You know, lots lots of distress funds have moved into the secondary 
debt trading uh, distress market, which hasn't really happened before in, in APAC. And so, you know, it's something to look look to, I think, in, in the uh, in the new year. And lastly, so continuing that trend of distress funds, I think uh, that some new money debt funds as well will begin to play an increasingly large role. Um, they're playing a huge role in Europe already as banks tighten up liquidity. Um, and I think they'll play a increasingly bigger role here as well next year. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a exciting new exciting 2021, I think. Oh, that that is actually very good to hear. I'm very pleased that you've said that. Um, I think we're all keen to move on with enough with, albeit with a, a touch of caution from from here on. And um, finally, before I let you go, uh, keeping in mind that we're all friends here, from your perspective <laughs> and the perspective of your clients and the banks and the borrowers, can you give us your top tip for ensuring that agents can help facilitate a smooth transaction? Yeah, I think it's, you know, agents play a very crucial role in transactions and without without agents, the syndicate, you know, the loan market wouldn't work. You know, they play, and, you know, because we couldn't have syndicated loans and syndicated loans are an important feature of, of liquidity because it means that different lenders can share risk in the same uh, investment. And so, you know, I think sometimes people fail to realize, particularly sometimes lenders and particularly borrowers, how important a role agents play. In that context, in, in providing the, the, the in, in facilitating this product, and, and I think in that context, you know, it's it's really important to make sure that the the debt documents work operationally uh, for the agents, and and in that context, I think the best agents that that we have encountered uh, are those who, who who sort of understand that and understand that there's actually a variety of different debt products as well. So if you are, for example, uh, an agent for a fully syndicated deal, which is investment grade, which is lent at a corporate level to a listed company, and which is intended to be syndicated to a wide variety of investors, I think an agent would act very differently in that context, or should act very differently in that context to, uh, to, to, to a deal where, where it's only like one or two lenders, um, uh, it's really meant to be a club deal, so not meant to be fully syndicated, uh, but there will be an agent role there. And in that context, in, in the latter context, I think it's, there's a big distinction there between that sort of deal and, say, for example, a listed debt deal, where 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 you know investors may be less involved in negotiating the documents, may be less involved in understanding what the underlying nature of the business is, will be less involved in interacting with the borrower. But in the context of where you have of a club loan, where there's one or two lenders. Um, lending to a borrower, you know, the the commercials uh, will be discussed directly between the two of them, and so in that context, the agents, I think, I think the parties there would value agents who most when they give comments which help the product function operationally, uh, and there's no need for the agent to to you know to raise what would perhaps be seen as commercial comments uh, as between the lenders and the and the borrower. So, you know, but 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 you know, this may be different where you have a very fully syndicated facility where there's going to be 20, 30, 40 banks. Uh, you know, the role of an agent in that context is slightly more different. Um, so, you know, I think it's that sort of nuance which is, you know, which borrowers and lenders value most. Excellent. That is nuance. Excellent. That's uh, that's the insight that we needed from the other side of the aisle. Um, thank you so much again for joining us today, Dan. Um, I, I believe this has been really insightful and I know that our team really looks forward to, to working with you guys, your team there in Hong Kong. So thank you very much. I'll say goodbye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
Well, it does sound as though there's going to be plenty for all of us to do in, in the months ahead leading into 2021. To discuss what that might mean for agents, I am very pleased to welcome back my friend, Katie Signey, an associate in our APAC Corporate Trust and Agency team. Hey, Katie. Hi, Holly. Hello. So, Katie, the mechanics of a refinancing and release of security held under an existing facility require input from both the facility agent and the security agent. And depending on the structure of the deal, in my experience, there are several things we need to think about from the outset. What are some of those key points? That's right, Holly. I think one key point to note up front, and which Dan mentioned, is that the borrower or the lenders may have expectations of the facility agent or the security agent, which may go beyond the role that's set out in the documentation. So at all stages, it's important to make sure that the agents are comfortable with the mechanics being proposed by the commercial parties and what is being asked of them. Also, it's a good starting point when a facility is being refinanced, a key question is whether it'll be the same lenders rolling over the facility or if there are new lenders coming in, which means there'll be a prepayment of the existing facility. If the same lender group is refinancing, then subject to the complexity of the new deal, the agents are unlikely to have any issues with getting consents or instructions. However, if there are new lenders coming in, you'll need to consider a number of other points. Okay, so we're entering a refinancing there is security involved. Let's discuss this first from the perspective of the facility agent and assuming that there is a new lender or lenders entering the syndicate. I think the first questions that we need to ask are what is the notice period for prepayment in the existing facility agreement and is lender consent required to fit with the utilisation timetable of the new facility? Correct. So if there's a prepayment of the existing facility taking place following drawdown of the north new facility, we need to make sure that the notice period in the facility agreement fits in with the utilisation timetable and accordingly will that period need to be shortened or waived by the existing lenders. So the borrowers are likely to want to submit a prepayment notice until they've satisfied all their CPs and are certain that they can submit their utilisation request for the new facility. So the facility agent is going to need to liaise with the existing lenders to get their consent for any waiver required. This needs to be checked and flagged early on just to make sure there's time to get a response from any banks that aren't involved in the refinancing and may not respond as quickly as we would like. Right, okay, so once this repayment is made, is the facility agent required to give a confirmation that all amounts have been repaid under the existing facility? This is something that's sometimes asked for where existing security is being released either, either as part of a refinancing or at the end of the life of the facility. So we check for the trigger for the release of the security and the deed of release and ensure that the agent is comfortable giving any confirmation that's being asked of them. They may need to go out to the existing lenders and check whether all amounts have been repaid if they don't have visibility as to all fees and also from any other agent parties, for example, if they're not acting as security agent or if there's a separate onshore security agent. Again, just in case there's any fees they're not aware of. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, it's also worth considering whether there's any legal fees that are outstanding which need to be paid before the confirmation can be given, particularly those incurred in the release process itself. Uh, yes, uh, payment of legal fees is a critical part of the proceedings. Um, are there any other considerations? Uh, yeah, as the confirmation can only be given after the drawdown of the new facility, the incoming lenders sometimes might be nervous that that confirmation won't be forthcoming promptly enough for them. So depending on how the deal is structured, this can affect when the new security come, becomes into effect or becomes first ranking. So this needs to be managed. We have seen the facility agent being asked to give an undertaking or confirmation that they will give that confirmation 
promptly, but you need to think about what sort of reassurance the agent is able to provide and manage the lender's expectations accordingly. Great, okay. So now let's pivot to the perspective of the security agent. For them, timing is everything. Consequently, I think the first question that we ask here is when the deed of release is going to be signed? Yeah, so council acting for new lenders would often want this to be signed up front as a condition precedent with an effective date concept to prevent there being any time gap in the existing security being released and their new, new security coming into effect when the funds are drawn down. So whilst this is fine in principle, the security agent obviously needs consent from the existing lenders to sign any deed of release. And sometimes an outgoing lender might be reluctant to give that consent before they're repaid. So we just need to check the structure that's being proposed and flag any potential issues early on. Is this a critical issue? It can be. Maybe the incoming lenders have their credit approvals on the basis of security being taken in parallel to funding. So it's just something to keep in mind. In that event, the next question is to ask how is the new security being structured to prevent a time gap between drawdown and the new security becoming effective after the release of the existing security? So the decision on how to structure it is obviously a commercial one taken by the lender council and the lenders themselves and impacted by advice from local council in the relevant jurisdictions as to what's achievable. But there are four main ways that we see it being structured. The firstly is having the new security signed and dated up front as a CP, drafted to be second ranking until the existing security is released. As long as this is fine commercially, we don't have an issue this for the security agent as it won't impact the existing security. Secondly, the new security could be signed but left undated as a condition precedent. And in this case, you generally see lender council being given authority to date that new security once the release becomes effective. And this gives the incoming lenders some comfort that there's not going to be any time gap in the documents being dated. Probably the most common approach that we see is for the security to be signed and dated as a CP, but drafted with an effective date concept, which matches the trigger in the deed of release. So that comes into effect as set out in the deed of release. And finally, the new security could be entered as a conditions, press, conditions subsequent, sorry, with a short deadline post-utilisation of the new facility and repayment of the existing facility. Okay then, um, other than what you've already described, will the release of the existing security involve any further documentation from the security agent? It could do. For example, if there's security taken over account with a third party account bank, you may need to deliver a notice to the account bank confirming that the account is no longer secured. Or for example, in some jurisdictions, there are administrative steps they're required to unregister security over shares, for example, before the new security can be registered and perfected. So sometimes you need to consider the logistics of satisfying these steps, particularly if originals are needed to be in certain locations at certain times. Okay, speaking of original documents, as a side note, it is important early on that the security agent considers what original documents it may already be holding for the existing security. Yeah, it's important to check early on that you've got everything that you're supposed to be holding under the existing security, particularly the share certificates. So these may effectively need to be re-delivered as CPs under the new facility. And it might be assumed that the security agent has everything that they need. And obviously in practice, it's not uncommon for originals to be sitting on the wrong person's desk and not have reached the security agent perhaps at the end of the transaction. Uh, yes, the uncontrolled variable that is human error. Um, assuming these documents can be physically located, assuming they can be physically located, will the release of the existing security involve returning any documents to release parties? 
Yeah, this would certainly take place at the end of the life facility, but also in a re refinancing situation, there may be deliverables which need to be re-executed for the new security. For example, under a share charge, they may have received letters of resignation which are specific to the security document and the facility agreement itself. And those, those will need to be returned to the borrower and re-executed for the new facility. Got it. Okay, as always, Katie, plenty of insight offered and some great practical takeaways for our clients. Thank you so much for joining me again today. I'll say goodbye. Thank you, Holly. Bye. And finally today, joining me for our KIV segment is Tim Beach, the head of our APAC Corporate Trust and Agency team, to talk about what he is currently keeping in view. Hello, Tim. Hi, Holly. So tell us, what is currently on your radar that might be useful for our clients? Well, two points uh, from me today. The first is a quick update on virtual bondholder meetings. Um, there have been some developments in the London market lately as they deal um, perhaps more so than, than many of us in, in Asia back at the moment with ongoing COVID-related um, restrictions on, on having physical meetings. What that's meant is that we've seen some uh, differences of approach between different trustees uh, when it comes to actually having the meetings on the basis that they're not catered for in existing documentation specifically. Some trustees are considering that uh, the virtual meeting procedures require a formal exercise of trustee discretion. Others are taking the approach that uh, they, they just need to see a, an agreed upon list of what those new regulations are. And some trustees are happy to be uh, you know, a bit more, more ad hoc than that. It's not perhaps that surprising that there's a, a difference in approach where you have a new issue of, of this nature. Um, and I'd expect that market practice will, will settle down you know, somewhere within the range of those different current views at some point over the next few months. We're also aware that the ICMSA uh, trustee subcommittee in London is busy settling some, some wording which will be a suggested standard to go in new deals which will specifically cater for virtual bondholder meetings and, and that may help also um, standardise the practice over time. But in the meantime, if, uh, if you have a virtual meeting coming up and you'd like to have a chat about what we're seeing in terms of what the current practice is, then, then obviously do please reach out and, and, and let us know. The second point is one you've heard me talk about quite a bit over the, the last couple of years actually, which is um, China defaults and, and an increase on the defaults we're seeing coming out of China. That remains very topical. Um, they keep coming. Uh, many of you will have heard of uh, the Yongcheng Coal onshore default that happened two or three weeks ago, leading to a default in the offshore notes issued by its parent, Henan Energy and Chemicals, which is a large SOE in Henan province. And it's interesting because although some Chinese provinces have effectively said they will stand behind the debt that's been incurred by their SOEs, Henan hasn't. And that made uh, the, the, the Yongchen and Henan chemicals default um, quite a big shock, I think, for, for the market at that time. It really rattled the, uh, the, the new SOE issuance market. The other interesting development, though, is what we're seeing in the onshore restructurings that have been running for, for, for some longer period of time. So, for example, Peking founder, Qinghai, Tiwu, uh, and CEFC Shanghai. Some of those are starting to reach the sharp end now, and we're starting to see what the, the outcomes might look like for the bondholders uh, and, and what they might be offered to come out of the restructurings. And the key point really on that is whether the holders are going to get cash of, of some degree or whether they're going to be offered equity in exchange for their debt or some other form of asset. The reason that's important is 
obviously from a trustee perspective, if the only thing holders are being given is equity, then there's no ability for the trustee to top slice cash coming through and repay itself any fees that it's incurred uh, in, in dealing with the proceedings. And the second, of course, from the bondholders perspective is that many offshore bondholders may be in a position where they're not able to hold onshore equity. So query what would happen to them in those circumstances. So I think that's an interesting one that you know, will develop uh, over the course of the next few months. That's it from me. Um, I just like before I finish to thank everyone for their support during 2020. It's uh, been quite a year, obviously. Um, I hope you all managed to get a great break over Christmas and uh, I look forward to catching up with you for uh, let's, uh, let's Touch Wood, a more normal 2021. Thanks everyone. Excellent. Thank you, Tim. Um, as always, everybody, if, you have, uh, if you'd like any further information on any of these topics or anything that we've discussed today, do reach out to our team and we would be more than happy to assist. Well, that's it. That brings us to the end of this instalment of Trust Us and the final instalment for the year. Thank you to all of you who have continued to engage with us via this medium. We've really enjoyed bringing it to you and we hope it has been helpful and ever so slightly entertaining. A very big thank you to my wonderful colleagues, Katie, Tim, and our special guest, Dan, for offering their insights today. As always, questions, comments, feedback, etc., are warmly welcomed. Uh, please do share this episode as a podcast with your colleagues and encourage them to reach out too if there's anything that they would like us to address in the future. That's it from me. Thank you all so much for joining us. On behalf of the team, we wish you all the best for a very Merry Christmas and holiday season. And we look forward to seeing you all, perhaps even in person, in 2021. Cheers.